Well, you made it in, I'll give the talk. Endurance and equanimity are two qualities that the Thai Johns notice were very much lacking in their Western students. And if anything, the pandemic has shown that they were right. It's been a real test for our powers of endurance, a real test for our powers of equanimity. And it's going to continue to, to test those powers. So it's be good to think about how to develop them, where they're skillful, whether or not, what they actually are. And both qualities help you and help others. They help you not to react in unskillful ways to unfortunate situations. And you're not inflicting your anger and your frustration on other people. The closely related of the two, endurance is more in terms of your external expression. You don't react with anger to unpleasant events. Whereas equanimity is more an internal quality. You maintain an even emotional keel in the face of pleasant and unpleasant events. Both are also closely related, as we will see as we go through the discussion today, to the quality of metta or goodwill. You want your metta to be enduring despite other people's misbehavior. And equanimity becomes skillful only when it's coupled with goodwill, otherwise it becomes unfeeling and heartless indifference. So it's good to understand how these qualities are interact. One thing that's important to understand is that neither attitude is the goal of the practice. We're not here to become arrived or to arrive at equanimity. Sometimes Westerners studying Thailand misunderstood this point. When the Johns saw that we Westerners were lacking in equanimity and endurance, that was the main emphasis of the teaching. So much so that people tend to not notice, well, there was more to it than that. This was just the, laying the groundwork for the practice as it continues. In terms of the duties of the Four Noble Truths, these are qualities that are not to be realized, they're to be developed. You have to give rise to them as you give rise to other parts of the path. And they're both means to happiness. You're not just sitting and gritting your teeth, staying neutral and putting up with things. The ways of developing an instability that's not shaken by change. And that stability is a foundation for genuine happiness. The simple fact of not being shaken is already happy, but it also gives you strength for doing the right thing in any situation. Also, we have to note that endurance and equanimity have to be developed at the right time and the right place. There is such a thing as unskillful endurance. In other words, putting up with things that you should not put up with. And there is such a thing as unskillful equanimity, being equanimous in situations that actually require action. So we have to look at these two states carefully to know when they're skillful, when they're not. And the fact that they have to be developed involves three kinds of fabrication. This is where discernment comes into their development. You know, the three kinds of fabrication. There's bodily fabrication, which is the way you breathe. Verbal fabrication, directed thought and evaluation, which is the way you talk to yourself. And then mental fabrication, feelings and perceptions that you focus on and develop. And you will find that as you need to develop equanimity and endurance, you're going to be engaging in these three kinds of fabrication. And when doing this, we're bringing knowledge to processes in the mind and the body that are often done in ignorance. So we learn about them through committing ourselves to the practice and then reflecting on the results of what we've done. This is a principle, it's interesting, it's mentioned only once or twice in the canon, but it's a very basic principle of arriving at the Dharma. If you want to understand the Dharma, you commit yourself to practicing it and then you watch yourself as you practice to see what results you're getting. 
And in that way, you get a better and get a sense of what the Dharma is and how it's most usefully applied. So first, endurance. Endurance is a quality of mind. It's rooted in the desire, as are all qualities of mind. In this case, the desires, you want to be able to stick with your skillful desires and actions in the face of pain and unpleasant situations. It is a type of non-reactivity. In other words, you do not react with anger in situations that ordinarily would have provoked your anger. And it's a strength. You learn that you can develop your goodness in a way that doesn't have to depend on the goodness of others. In other words, you don't have to ask for their support, emotional or physical or financial. You have your own inner resources to draw on, even in difficult situations, because you're going to need the Dharma, these qualities of the Dharma, especially in difficult situations. So it's good to learn how to practice them, even when the situations are not conducive. Now, the word for endurance in Pali, Kanti, is also translated as patience, tolerance, forbearance. This, together with equanimity, is needed for stamina on the path. It's also listed as one of the ways in which you benefit yourself by benefiting others. It goes together with harmlessness, a mind of goodwill, and sympathy. In other words, when you are harmless with other people, you have goodwill for them, sympathy, you're harmless toward them. You're benefiting them directly, but you're also benefiting yourself in terms of developing these good qualities in mind that provide for safety inside. Now, there will be some instances where people look down on you for putting up with things or enduring things. But you have to remember, they, after trying, you have to train yourself to see forbearance as strength. For those of you who read the readings, you may have read that passage where Saka, the king of the Davids, talks about how if people don't understand your forbearance, they think it is a sign of weakness. That's simply their misunderstanding. You know what you're doing as you put up with things that otherwise you might, other people might be able to put up with. This is an important part of mental fabrication. The perceptions that you hold in mind, that you that when you are able to put up with difficulties, you are being strong. And you're also not lowering yourself to the level of other people. Think of the story of Lady Vedehika, whose slave decided to test her. You know, she was well known for being kind and, and gentle. Was she kind and gentle simply because her slave was really good? Or, or was she, did they have, she had that as an innate quality? So the slave tests her, gets up later and later and later in the morning to finally lay Lady Vedehika. Takes a rolling pin, beats her over the head. Of course, that's the end of her, her reputation as being, for being kind and gentle. So you want, to be able, you want to be kind and gentle and have goodwill, even in the face of difficult situations, even when you're provoked. And also, you might want to remember, if people are yelling at you and saying horrible things about you, you don't have to respond. Remember Mark Twain's perception. It's a good perception to hold in mind. He says, never do battle with a pig. It gets you dirty and it pleases the pig. So keep that in mind when you're being attacked. Now, the practice of endurance requires making distinctions. There are some things that should be tolerated and some things that shouldn't. These are based on the principles of, of karma and fabrication. In other words, there are things coming in from your past karma that you cannot change. You've got to learn how to endure those. As for unskillful qualities that are arising in the mind in the present moment, you do not endure those. You try to get rid of them as quickly as you can. Let's go into that distinction in a little bit more detail. In terms of the things that you should tolerate, um, the Buddha focuses on two main things, harsh words and physical pain. These are results of old karma. In both cases, you can use three fabrications so that you don't have to suffer. For example, think of the Buddha. When he had his 
foot pierced by a stone sliver. So he was in great pain after the sliver was removed. He lay down to rest. And Mara comes up and taunts him. She says, you're sleepyhead, what's wrong with you? And the Buddha says, I'm not sleepyhead, I'm not, I'm not moping. I'm sending sympathy for, for all beings all over the place. If there's a case where someone had tried to kill him, until he was able to develop the perception and, de- and develop the thoughts of goodwill and sympathy for all beings as a way of keeping himself from suffering. In the, in the case of harsh words, the Buddha has basically two ways of depersonalizing them so that you don't suffer so much from them. One is to remind yourself that this is the nature of human speech. There is true speech and there is false speech. Well-meaning speech, speech is not well-meaning. Speech that is timely, speech that is not. Speech that is useful, speech that is not. So when people are lying to you or saying nasty, harsh, uh, useless things, remind yourself, this is not out of the ordinary. You're not being singled out for something that's outrageously different from what everybody else has done. Because the problem is when we think that we're being subjected to outrageously bad behavior, we start thinking, well, we can do outrageous things in response. It gives us a sense of entitlement. But when you realize well, this is the way of the world, this is when people have been acting all over the place, means that you have, this is another case where you do have to maintain your normalcy in terms of not reacting in non-skillful ways. Another way that Buddha has your depersonalized things is to remind yourself that when someone says something, you just tell yourself an unpleasant sound has made contact at the ear and let it stop right there. You don't have to continue the story about, well, why is this person saying this horrible thing about me? Um, this is really outrageous. Just let it, okay, there's an unpleasant sound and that's it. Our problem is that we let it reverberate through the mind. And it's the reverberations that actually cause us to suffer. So basically, this is, these are techniques for making it easier to put up the difficult things that would ordinarily provoke us. You can also think of a John Gleese image. She says, if People say horrible things about you and you take them to think about it. It's as if you're eating things that have been spat out. And then you get a stomachache, but who are you going to blame? After all, you're the one who's stupid enough to pick it up and eat it anyhow. And sometimes you might think further. If you take their words into your mouth and spit back at them, you're going to get sick for sure. So when something has said something nasty at you, just leave it there, spit on the ground. And it's a lot easier to deal with. For dealing with physical pain, it's useful to look at the second tetrad in breath meditation. It talks about four steps in dealing with feelings, and they're very useful for dealing with feelings of pain coming up in the body. The first is to breathe in and out sensitive to rapture. Second is to breathe in and out sensitive to pleasure. The third is to breathe in and out sensitive to mental fabrication. And the fourth is to breathe in and out calming mental fabrication. Now, those first two steps there, breathing in and out, sensitive to pleasure and rapture, you're basically reminding yourself that if you focus on the pain, you're going to make things more difficult for yourself. Look for the potentials for pleasure in the body that are there right now. As John Lee once pointed out, if you cannot find any pleasure anywhere in the body, if it's nothing but pain, you're going to die. The fact that you're not dead means that there, there must be some place where you can develop some pleasure through the way you breathe, where you focus on that and let your mind feed on that. And it gives you some strength to deal with the physical pain in other parts of the body. As for steps three and four, those correspond to the way Ajahn Mahabu recommends that you deal with pain. In other words, you start looking at the way you perceive the pain. If you perceive, say, if there's a pain in your knee, do you perceive the pain as the same thing as your knee? You have to remind yourself, pain is one sort of thing. 
the knee is something else. The knee is composed of earth, water, or your sensation. The knee is composed of solidity, liquidity, warmth, and energy. And the pain is none of those. It's something else entirely. So you learn how to take this glob of pain that you, you perceive, and you take, you take the perception apart. You can also ask yourself if the pain has any bad intentions toward you, which part of your mind will say, well, of course not. The pain doesn't have any int- intentions. But you, you think deep, a little bit deeper into your mind, you find there may be a part of the body that actually perceives it as having an intention to invade you. It just reminds yourself, it's just there. Also, you can look at the perception and sees the pain as one continuous pain. Try to take it apart into little moments of pain that arise and pass away, arise and pass away. And one way of noticing that is to look for the point where the pain is sharpest. Don't be afraid of it. Look, chase it down. And as you chase it down, you begin to realize it moves all over the place. And that will change your perception around the pain and it gives you calmer perceptions to deal with the pain. And finally, when you think of the pain arising in moments, don't think of the moments of pain coming at you. Think of them going away as they arise. It's like sitting in the back of one of those old station wagons with the back seat faced back. And as you're looking back behind you, as you go down the road, things come into your range of awareness. And as soon as they appear in your range of awareness, they're going away past you. So think of the pain as that. As soon as you're aware of it, it's going away and going away. I've told the story. Some of you may, may know the story. I was in Singapore one time having a treatment for my back. And the Chinese doctor first started rubbing some oil into my back and started feeling nice. And then he rubbed harder and harder and harder until my skin was really raw. And then he took these bamboo poles that had been made into wisps and started beating on my back. And my first thought was, what bad karma did I do <laughs> to deserve this? And then my second thought was, I, I don't know Chinese. I can't tell him to stop. And so I figured I'm going to have to put up with this and I want, want to maintain a good reputation for Westerners anyhow. We do have that reputation of being kind of weak over there. So I put up with the pain. But then I realized, okay, just putting up with the pain is not going to help. I've got to figure out some way to think about the pain that's not going to, that's not, that's going to minimize the, the mental pain from this. And that's when I realized that as soon as the, the whisk hit, the pain was going away. The pain came, it went away immediately. So as I saw the pain going away, going away, going away, I was able to put up with half an hour of this treatment. It must have been, it felt really good after it was done because he was no longer beating me. <laughs> but I also learned an important lesson that sometimes there's some place in the mind that thinks that the pain is coming at you. And if you can switch that perception around, then you can stip, sit with the pain and with a lot less mental anguish. In fact, that was one of my main lessons I learned in Thailand. After I returned from Thailand, someone once asked me, what was the most difficult thing to endure while you were in Thailand? And I had to stop and think. And I couldn't think of anything, one thing in particular. And I realized that was why I was able to put up with whatever difficulties there were. I wasn't focusing on the difficulties. I was focusing on the fact that I was learning a lot. This was an adventure I was having. As long as you put yourself up for the adventure, then the pains fall off to the side. You can also think of the story of Buna, the monk who, in the time of the Buddha, was going to go to a rough part of India. He went to say goodbye to the Buddha. And the Buddha said to him, you know, that's a really rough, uncivilized place you're going to. What are you going to do if those people yell at you? And the monk said, Buddha said, well, I'll tell myself it's a good thing they're yelling at me, they're not hitting me. Well, what if they hit you? Now, at the time, they're good and they're not hitting and throwing stones at me. What if they throw stones at you? 
I'll tell myself, these are good people, they're not stabbing me. What if they stab you? I'll tell myself, these are good people, they're, they're not killing me. What if they kill you? I'll tell myself, I was able to die without, my death didn't involve suicide. <laughs> so if you can think in those ways, you can find yourself a lot easier to deal with difficult situations. Now, this would come under the topic of verbal fabrication, how you talk to yourself, and mental fabrication, the images that you hold in mind. In other words, you have to learn how to make light of situations that otherwise would be difficult. I noticed when I came here to the States, there was one time when we were, had to fix up the electricity room. We have a solar system here at the monastery. And the county had placed some very stringent requirements on how the solar system had to be set up. And we had two Americans coming to help us. And all they could do throughout the time was to complain, complain, complain about the regulations, complain about the difficulties. And I was there with them trying to lighten their mood, and they just didn't want to have their mood lightened. Whereas I was thinking about it over in Thailand when we had work at the monastery. You know, sometimes people laugh. They say, you know, what takes you know, five Thai people to do one, the job of one person. One person actually does the work, and the other four sit around and talk. Well, the reason the other four are sitting there and talking because they want to make sure that one person who's doing the job is in a good mood. And they find ways of lightening the mood so the work goes more easily. So a good lesson to learn. You, when things seem harsh and heavy, try to lighten your mood as best you can. Now, as for things that you don't tolerate, these come into two categories. One is you don't tolerate unskillful mind states. And this is a case of present karma. This point has to be emphasized again and again because sometimes we're told that the desire to improve the state of your mind is a type of craving. Well, it is a desire, but you have to remember there are skillful desires and unskillful desires. Right effort is based on generating desire to abandon unskillful qualities and generating desire to develop skillful qualities. Now, that kind of desire is actually part of the path. And it's an important distinction to make. So how do you generate that kind of desire? The Buddha talks about different ways of motivating yourself. Um, say for when you're dealing with anger, the lowest way of dealing with anger is to deal with it out of spite. In other words, you remind yourself, this person who is doing something horrible to me, if I respond with anger, I'm going to do something stupid. And when I do something stupid, that's going to give him satisfaction. Do I want to satisfy that person? <laughs> and you say, no. Okay, I'm not going to express my anger. Now that's the kind of, there's basically spite involved in that. You know, if I if I act out of anger, I'm going to be ugly. That will please my enemy. If I act out of anger, I will do things that are not in my best interest, even though I, I perceive them as being in my interest. Do I want to please that person? No. So that's the lowest form of motivation. It's just simply out of spite. You don't want to you don't want to please your enemy. The others are based more on giving rise to goodwill, empathetic joy. Or good, goodwill, compassion, equanimity. In other words, you remind yourself that if I act on my anger, I'm going to do things that are going to be harmful to me. Now, do I love myself or do I not love myself? If I really love myself, I shouldn't be acting on anger. That starts with goodwill for yourself. And then you also have to remind yourself many times the people who are making you angry are people who've been close to you, people who've, who've depended on in the past. And you're going to let the relationship die simply because they've done one thing that goes against your wishes. You have to think about their good qualities. The image the Buddha gives is of a monk walking through the desert. 
it comes across a piece of cloth. Now, the, the part of the cloth is very dirty, but he's realized that the other part of that cloth could be useful for, for making robes. And so he very carefully separates the two pieces and goes on with it with a clean piece of cloth. Another image that's in the canon is another person going through the desert, this time hot, tired, trembling with thirst, comes across some water and the footprint of a cow. And he realizes, okay, if I just would scoop this water up with my hand, it would make it muddy. If I were to scoop this up with my hand, it would make it muddy. So I've got to get down and slurp it up. Now, if someone were to come along and take an Instagram of you at that moment while you're slurping up the water out of a cow's footprint, it's not the sort of thing that you would want to have spread around the web. But you realize, okay, I don't care. I need this water. You have to have that attitude towards the goodness of other people who have made you angry. Otherwise, you're going to respond in an unskillful way. And it's going to be bad for you in the long run. So you do look for other people's good qualities as a way of making it easier for you to have goodwill for them. Now, if someone has no good qualities at all, and you look at the way they talk, the way they think, the way they act, you don't see any redeeming features. You have to have compassion for that person. Instead of thinking about how much you'd like to see that person suffer, you've got to realize, well, this person is going to suffer for sure from his, his bad karma. I don't need to add anything on top of it. And I've really got to feel sorry for the guy because he is so, so foolish. So those are ways of dealing with anger and giving rise to good law in its place. And when anger does arise, and you want to get past it, the Buddha talks about three steps in dealing with it. First, you have to see the anger as something separate. This is one of those parts of Buddhist insight that often gets glossed over. When we're told to see everything as a oneness, the Buddha never said to see things as a oneness. He says you have to insight means seeing things as separate things, separate events. As you're able to tease out, once you see them as separate, then you can see what is causing what, what goes along with what, and which two things are actually not related at all. So in this particular case, you want to see that your awareness is one thing, the anger is something else. And so you can watch the anger without necessarily having to get into it. Most of us, when anger comes, it's like a car drives up on the side of the road, big, flashy car. And the driver says, okay, come on, let's go. And you jump right in. And you're in, you feel, then you find yourself in the car, and then you realize that the car is being driven by a maniac. And once you're in a car like that, and it's just zooming down the road, it's hard to get out. So you've got to learn how to step out from the very beginning before it gets dangerous. So the first step is to see the anger as something separate. Your awareness is one thing, the anger is something else. And then you want to divide it into its component factors, seeing as part of a causal sequence. The anger there, there's going to be a perception. What's the perception behind it? There's going to be a feeling there. What's the feeling in there? In other words, you divide it up into those different types of fabrication. How are you breathing? Number one, bodily fabrication. How are you breathing around the anger? Can you change the way you breathe? Two, how are you talking to yourself about the anger? Can you talk to yourself in a new way? And then three, what are the perceptions underlying this? If you're angry at your boss, does part of you see the boss as a monster? Or you can see the boss as just a, you know, an ordinary human being who's got problems at home, maybe taking them out on the, on the workers. Maybe all the boss needs is a little bit of sympathy and things would change in the workplace. So learn how to change your perception, see if you can get a perception that's more skillful in dealing with a difficult situation. 
and then look at how the anger arises. You know, when, when the Buddha talks arising, he doesn't really use the word simple, simple word arising, he says origination. Now that means look for the cause. What is it that sparks the anger? And particularly look for the cause inside the mind. Nine times out of 10, when the Buddha uses the word origination, it's for causes coming out of the mind. So you look into the mind. What inside the mind makes you want to go for that anger? And then look for it's passing away. That'll help you realize that hey, these things come and they go, but then, they, then you dig them up again. Why do you dig them up again? That, that, that gets you into the third thing you want to understand, which is the allure. What is attractive about the anger? Part of it is the sense of energy that comes with it. Part of it is that when anger comes in, it pushes aside any sense of shame and compunction, which are actually skillful qualities of the mind. The shame that it's not, we're not talking about the shame that's the opposite of pride. We're talking about the shame that's the opposite of shamelessness. When you're feeling shameless, you can say anything at all. You don't care. When you have compunction, you, you will do anything you want and you don't care. You're apathetic or just non-feeling. And anger sometimes pushes those mind states away and you feel liberated from them a little bit. And you can say what you've always wanted to say all along, but were too wise to say before, but now you don't you know, you feel that you have justified to say it. Then, of course, you're going to regret it later. So we want to look for the allure. What, what is attractive about anger? Then look at the drawbacks. Try to think back on all the things that you have ruined by responding in anger. Do you want to keep up, keep up with doing that, or do you want to get past it? When you can see it, the allure, and, and sometimes the allure is very childish, very immature. You say, look at all the drawbacks I have that I, I, that I have to suffer because I've fallen for the stupid childish allure, then you're more and more inclined to get dispassionate toward the anger and not want to express it, which makes endurance a lot easier. So that's one of the things that you don't tolerate, which is unskillful behavior. The second thing you don't tolerate is bullies. Although this is not an absolute, the Buddha doesn't place this as an absolute um, requirement. As you see somebody being bullied by someone else, he says, there are times when you, have, you, you want to look back in your life and you realize, okay, I gave protection to those who are in fear, those who are in danger. So there are cases where you do want to step in. Again, this, one, this is one of those cases where, as with any good, any good warrior, you have to choose your battles. But it's, it, it, again, it, it's useful to remind yourself that the Buddha does talk about this. He calls it you know, giving protection to those in fear or giving protection to those in danger. And it's something that you do want to be able to look back on as you look back on your life, that you've actually done that. So this way, it's not saying, well, the Buddhists just say, well, whatever. There's, there are times when you have to step in, as you, when you see that the opportunity is right, and that you're in a position where you can actually make a difference. Now, this distinction between skillful endurance and unskillful endurance has its parallel in the Buddhist distinction between Skillful contentment and unskillful contentment. You're content, he says, with your physical surroundings. In fact, this is an important part of the what they call the customs of the noble ones. You are content with any old clothing, any old food, any old shelter. As long as it's good enough to survive, good enough to practice, it's okay. At the same time, you look at the dangers of being attached, even to being attached to being content. He said there are times you can exalt yourself and disparage others over the fact that you're content with a few things other people are not 
He says, okay, that's a danger too. Watch out for that. You learn to be content just as you have because you want to be able to focus your energy on the practice. You're not there to, to be in a contentment in a contest with other people. But the things that you're not content with is when unskillful, again, when unskillful qualities arise in the mind. This is the fourth of the customs of the noble ones. He says, you delight in developing and delight in abandoning. You delight in developing skillful qualities. You delight in abandoning unskillful ones. You don't just let the skillful qualities lie dormant. And you don't let the unskillful qualities come into the mind and stay. You actively work against them. You actively work towards developing skillful qualities in a place. Now, there's one area of endurance or patience that's not mentioned in the text, which we find a lot of people talking about these days, which is when you're stuck with responsibilities in a, in a situation which gives you a little time to practice. So here's another one of those cases where you take it apart into its component practices. As the Ajahn used to like to say, when people would come to say, I don't have time to practice in my life. And the Ajahn would always say, well, do you have time to breathe? Well, yes. Well, if you have time to breathe, you have time to practice. In other words, find ways of being alert to your breath, how the breath goes to the body. In fact, you find it's a very useful skill to have as you're dealing with issues at work, issues in the family, when you're confronting other people with difficult issues. If you can breathe calmly in the midst of all that, you've got a good foundation for endurance. You're developing one of the perfections right there. Here again, let's, let's look at the role of verbal and mental fabrication. Look at your difficulties in life as opportunities to develop the perfections, the perfection of endurance, the perfection of determination, the perfection of truthfulness. These are all things that are good to develop. So even though you have work that takes requires a lot of time, family responsibilities that require a lot of time, just learn to see them as opportunities to develop perfections in the mind. So you're not in a situation where you cannot practice, simply that you have to learn, okay, this, this is obviously the, the issue that I have to learn how to master because that's what my karma is presenting with me. So I better learn how to master it as best I can. Because it's only when you can continue to produce goodness, even in bad conditions, that's when you can trust it. Think of the Buddha's images of goodwill that he gives in Majjhima 21. He says when people come and say horrible things to you, turn around yourself that you're making you want to make your goodwill for that person as large and as solid as the earth. He has this humorous image of a man coming along with a, with a hoe and a bucket and saying, I want to make this earth be without earth. And so he digs here and he spits there and he urinates here and digs a little bit more there. But he's never going to be able to make the earth be without earth because the earth is so much larger. So when other people are mistreating you, think of, think of that man with his, with his hoe and his shovel. Trying to make the earth be without earth, make your make your metta, make your goodwill be as much larger than anything that person can affect. So similar images, make it like the river Ganges. Someone comes along with a torch trying to set fire to the Ganges. Well, the water is not going to get set fire to because it's not it's not a river in in Ohio in the nineteen seventies. It's a clean water. Okay, you want to make your your metta as cool as the water in the river Ganges. So these are images that you hold in mind that make it a lot easier to deal with a difficult situation and to develop the perfections all at the same time. So those are some of the thoughts I had on endurance.
for this morning. And I was wondering if anyone has any, anything to say, any questions based either on the readings or on the talk. <laughs> 